Welcome to IOL Radio, the podcast for IOL Learning, a digital publication geared toward interventional oncologists and the news source for the Symposium on Clinical Interventional Oncology. This podcast episode is part of the SIO Corner, a collaboration between IOL Learning and the Society of Interventional Oncology. Today, we're pleased to welcome guest host Dr. Elena Violari, interventional radiologist and member of the SIO's Publications Committee. Dr. Violari is joined by Dr. Ripal Gandhi, interventional radiologist at Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute. Dr. Gandhi will discuss his experiences building a successful Y90 program, along with recent advancements in Y90 radioembolization. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, today, we're very excited to have here Dr. Ripal Gandhi, who is an interventional radiologist at Miami Cardigan Vascular Institute. As a former MCVI fellow, I was fortunate to have worked and learned from you, Ripple, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to continue learning from your experience through this podcast today. Our main topic today would be to discuss how to build a successful Y90 program, and we will also discuss a bit more about recent advances with Y90. Ripple, welcome. Thanks, Elena. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the invitation. My first question for you is, what initially drew you into IR, and then more specifically, what made you be interested in interventional oncology? Yeah, you know, I initially started out as a surgical resident. I did my surgical uh, internship at Cornell. I was actually a categorical surgical resident. At the time, I noticed that everything was going more and more minimally invasive, and I really wasn't exposed to a lot of interventional radiology as a medical student. And that really piqued my interest, and I ultimately ended up changing fields because I really liked the minimally invasive nature of interventional radiology, and I, I really liked the gadgets, the tools, and the potential to really innovate. And that's really what piqued my interest and in, which uh, led me to this field. That's a great story. Um, I know from my personal experience at MCVI that you have a very busy interventional oncology practice with a robust Y90 program. I was hoping you talked talk to us a little bit more about the current state of your practice. Uh, sure. You know, we have a really comprehensive interventional oncology program uh, here uh, at Baptist at Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute and Miami Cancer Institute. You know, we started building this practice, you know, pretty much, you know, when I came here, which was now uh, almost 13 to 14 years ago. And over the last several years, about five years ago, we built a dedicated cancer institute, a half a billion dollar dedicated cancer institute on campus here. And that has really further increased the growth of our practice, the number of patients that we're treating, and we're really treating, you know, the full range of patients with different oncologic conditions. Excellent. And one of my questions is, how did you manage to build such a strong IO practice and Y90 program at a private practice, which for many years was predominantly known for endovascular aortic work and PAD? Well, you know, I've always had an interest in uh, cancer work. And, you know, actually before my residency, I spent a year at Sloan Kettering doing mm -hmm. research on hepatic embolization and other cancer therapies. And then, you know, I had, I had an interest in, you know, all aspects of interventional radiology, but and I was driven a little bit more towards the cancer work after my fellowship. I was fortunate to spend some time in Korea as well, uh, spending some time at a busy center called Asan Medical Center. It has almost 3,000 beds and really gave me even more exposure to cancer. So when I came to here to Miami, I wanted to really grow and develop the oncology practice. And while they were doing some cancer work at the time here for sure, there really wasn't a dedicated interventional oncology practice that really needed a lot of growth. 
And the way, you know, we developed the practice here was, you know, actually going a lot of tumor boards, developing relationships with our local oncologists, understanding the data, and slowly developing relationships, developing programs, and over time, uh, that really, you know, flourished into a very, very strong and robust interventional oncology practice in general, and especially a strong Y90 program. So what were the main challenges you faced while building up the Y90 program, and how did you overcome them? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when I started, you know, again, this was some time ago, 13, 14 years ago. At the time, we didn't have the same clinical data for Y90 that we have today. Mm -hmm. So I think that was probably one of the major challenges. You know, we had some data for HCC, we had some data for colorectal cancer and other metastatic diseases, but we didn't have strong, robust data. And when sitting in a tumor board, I didn't have the same type of clinical data that I can quote today to support our treatments. So that's probably the biggest challenge. The other challenges are, you know, challenges that we encounter, you know, anywhere are, you know, developing the right relationships. And the other challenges that we encountered was really understanding the role of Y90 and other interventional minimally invasive therapies uh, mm -hmm. in the entire spectrum of oncologic treatments. Yeah, that's a really important point. So as physicians, I feel like we're primarily, you know, concerned about patients' welfare and doing what's best for the patient, the patient's outcomes. But sometimes hospitals, and especially private hospitals, they have to be concerned about the cost of procedures and the reimbursements. How did you get your hospital administration to buy into this new type of therapy and why it is would be beneficial for them and, of course, for their patients? I mean, I think I was fortunate to be at a center which is really known for innovation in a lot of aspects of interventional radiology, um, and especially in the peripheral and aortic space. So they were definitely used to innovation. So luckily, I was fortunate there. Really, my focus has always been on the patient and doing the best care for the patient. And I really thought that Y90, for example, was something that can really help our patients have minimally had very few side effects. Most patients went home the same day. So, and ultimately we did a economic analysis and our COO said to me that this is one of the few Medicare procedures, which is still profitable for the hospital. So at the end of the day, it was a win-win. We were doing mm -hmm. what I thought was best for the patients. And it was also economically very viable for the hospital. For those younger interventional oncologists who want to build a Y90 practice, can you walk us through on how to do it successfully? I know this is a loaded question and for sure an institution probably has its own challenges, but you know, for you, what are the general rules in building a successful Y90 practice? Yeah, I mean, I think there are several things that we have to look at. So number one, you know, I don't think of a Y90 practice alone. I think of inter interventional oncology practice and of which, mm -hmm. you know, Y90 is one of the components. But, you know, when we're looking at developing a practice, you know, the things that, you know, I always tell our trainees when they go out are, you know, the three A's and that's, you know, available, uh, affable and able. And the reality is probably the most important of the three, you would think it would be able, but probably the most important is being available. And that's one of the very important things in whatever practice you're joining and whether you're building an IO practice or any other type of practice, you want to be available. You know, I give my cell phone to everybody. I'm available 24-7. It doesn't matter if I'm on call or not. It doesn't matter if I'm traveling. I always answer my phone. So that's extremely, extremely important. Second is being affable. You know, you know, you might get calls for the most ridiculous things, but I'm 
I always try to be friendly and affable. And that is very, very important in developing relationships. And ultimately, you have to be able. You have to be able to have good outcomes. Um, you want to make sure that you're not having a lot of complications. You're making sure you want to make sure that you're providing good care to your patients. And when you do those three things, you can be very successful in building a practice. That's a great advice, Ripple. Um, what other collaborators do you think are necessary to make a Y90 practice? For example, medical physicists, nuclear medicine department. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, sure. So like every institution is very, has its own politics and, you know, all politics are certainly local. Certainly at our center, you know, uh, nuclear medicine uh, was very important and medical physicists uh, has been, you know, absolutely critical. Um, you know, as we're getting more and more advanced in how we're doing our Y90 and as we're doing voxel-based dosimetry, you know, we've mm-hmm. trained one of our medical physicists who, you know, she's really become an expert and really a big proponent of Y90 as well. But, you know, she does a lot of the volumes and dosimetry and has become a real expert and we happen to use MIM software. So I think that's been extremely helpful. But again, every institution is, is very, very dependent and you want to really understand, you know, the different people at play, how you want to develop your program. And then ultimately it's critical as you're growing the program to make it known in, you know, in your tumor board and be, and make sure that you're vocal in your tumor boards uh, such that you can continue to grow uh, the patient volume that you're seeing in your interventional oncology clinic. And what's the importance of seeing your patients in clinic before and after a 190 or procedure or any interventional oncology procedure? I think a clinic is very important. I was fortunate to join a practice which had a very robust clinic uh, for many, many years. Uh, but what we didn't have was a specific interventional oncology clinic, which we developed. But I think, you know, with any of these procedures, you know, the reality is as much as, you know, some of the referring physicians uh, know about our procedures, they don't really understand a lot of the nuances. Only you can really explain to them what to expect before the procedure, during the procedure, after the procedure, um, you know, what type of potential side effects, what potential toxicity, uh, what are the outcomes? You know, one of the things that I noticed early on was, you know, you really have to explain to the patient, you know, for metastatic disease, for example, the best, the results you can best see them on PET scan. And if the patient got other types of imaging, often the tumors might be the same or minimally changed, and that's okay. Or with HCC, for example, you might not expect to see a complete tumoral response on subsequent imaging. That doesn't mean that it's not working. And you have to keep following these patients. And if the patient got imaging, you know, very soon after the Y90, for example, you're not going to necessarily see a result. So these are things that are best managed by um, the interventional radiologist in the clinic. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think it's very important that the person doing the procedure is involved with the entire process from beginning to end so that the patient receives the most appropriate treatment in the safest way. I, I feel like if we want to be respected as I interventional oncologists, we have to be as accessible to our patients as our surgical and rad oncologists are. The reason I actually bring this up is because I feel that in smaller hospitals and practices, it can be a battle to set up an interventional radiology clinic because it does require additional ancillary staff, you know, schedulers, nursing staff, clinic managers, and so forth. And some practices don't have the resources available. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think having a dedicated IR clinic is an absolute requirement to build a Y90 program? You know, that's a great question, Elena. I mean, I think it's very, very important. But I do understand, you know, the potential logistical uh, challenges that, you know, maybe a smaller practice may have in developing such a clinic. 
And I think early on, you know, what you can do is even if you don't have an, a purely dedicated clinic space, maybe you could see patients, you know, in your office or mm-hmm. somewhere in a pre-procedural area. And, and that can eventually, you know, develop into a clinic. The other thing I would uh, definitely recommend that is done is that you're building for these consults. You know, mm-hmm. uh, as we're moving forward, you know, a lot of our procedural codes are decreasing in reimbursement. But, you know, in terms of consultation codes, ENM, follow-up afterwards, all of these are going to be increasing. I don't think that's the entire reason for doing it, but I think that's important in terms of, you know, what we discussed and being able to have longitudinal care of our patients. I agree with you. That's a great advice. And I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, but besides having a dedicated clinic, I do remember as a fellow, you will always emphasize the importance of attending the tumor birds in building and practice. Can you please tell us how tumor birds help build a practice? Look, I think tumor boards are absolutely critical. And I mean, anybody who knows me, I'm fanatical about attending our tumor mm-hmm. boards. It's very rare, very rarely that I will miss a tumor board, even if, even though I'm on vacation. And the nice thing right now is we do have the option to attend virtually, at least at our own institution. But uh, I think the key thing about tumor boards is, you know, there's a dynamic there. And, you know, we have very strong medical oncologists, surgeons, um, radiation oncologists. And the reality is only you can really explain to the board where you have a potential role. And in your absence, sometimes you're out of sight and out of mind. So it's absolutely critical to be there. It's it's absolutely critical to have a voice. Don't be afraid to speak up. And at the end of the day, this is where you're going to really generate a lot of your patient volume. Exactly. And how do you think an early career attending should be prepared for tumor birds? Yeah, I, I think I think there's a, several different things you could look at. But obviously, you want to really, really understand your data, understand the interventional oncology data. That should be, you know, very, very well known to you. And I could tell you, look, I, I, you know, coming out of training was I, I thought my fellowship was fantastic. I trained at UCLA. I had a lot of great uh, mentors. But I did I know everything? Was I prepared for tumor boards? I don't know if you ever are coming out of training. I ended up doing a lot of reading and I went to a lot of different meetings to really, really understand our data. The other thing that I've also been doing is I end up reading data from other specialties as well. I want to understand the medical oncology data. I want to understand the surgical data and I want to understand the radiation oncology data such that I can understand where I have a role, where there might be a potential synergistic role. And, um, and I want to understand exactly what the development, the new developments are in other specialties as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, actually, some of the best advice I got regarding building an interventional oncology practice with a busy one any program is that when you got when you got go to these tumor boards, you have to be very well rounded, not only what IR can offer, but also be up to date with the medical oncology literature, the radon literature, and surgical oncology literature. How do you identify what the most important and impactful papers are within these other specialties, and how do you manage to keep up with it? It's just there's so much to know, and uh, how do you manage to identify the most important knowledge? That's a, that's a great question, Elena, and it's something that, honestly, I struggle to do. It's hard enough to keep up to date with our own literature, uh, but to keep up with uh, all the other literature is is very challenging. Um, I do, you know, you know, definitely glance through, you know, the important journals, specifically, you know, Journal of Clinical Oncology, Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Oncology, uh, Red Journal for Radiation Oncology newsletters which you know you know from some of these throwaway journals which will have you know some of the major trials from other uh specialties 
Uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's very difficult. And uh, you know, I think, you know, just going to a lot of meetings and trying to read as much as possible can be extremely beneficial. And the, the other thing that I would also, you know, I always tell our trainees is, you know, tumor boards, uh, I wish it was purely about data, but it's also about there's always some politics and there's always relationships. So, you know, being there is also about developing those relationships uh, as well. Finally, how do, you, how do we get the word out? What's the best way to educate our medicine and surgery colleagues about the procedures we can offer in interventional oncology? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that really comes to uh, different types of venues where you can get in front of them. Um, mm -hmm. Grand rounds uh, can certainly be very valuable, but other things which I find to be as, as beneficial or if not more beneficial or small, you know, lunch, uh, lunch and learn type of sessions, conversations, you know, you do a biopsy and you could call mm -hmm. your referring physician and, you know, tell them about what you just did and maybe potential treatment you can offer. Mm -hmm. I think it's always, it always comes down to a lot of communication without our referring physicians. Exactly. Well, thank you. Well, this was a great discussion on practice building for Y90 and IO. Now I want to shift gears a little bit and talk more about the specifics of Y90 radiumbolization. Um, Y94 secondary patty malignancies is usually offered in patients who failed multiple lines of chemotherapy. Um, can you please update us a little bit on the current evidence for Y90 for secondary patty malignancies? Well, I mean, the, the secondary hepatic malignancies is obviously a big topic and includes a lot of diseases, but maybe I'll focus on, you know, colorectal cancer, for example, you know, we treat, you know, a decent number of colorectal cancer patients in our uh, practice. So certainly, you know, if you look at the NCCN guidelines, uh, it is recommended for patients with chemo refractory disease. So you certainly have strong evidence to utilize it in the salvage setting, you know, typically after two to three lines of systemic therapy. And, you know, what I'll tell our patients in that setting is that we probably have about a median overall survival, about, about a year, you know, plus or minus, depending on the patient, uh, which is significantly better than that of, you know, third line, you know, systemic therapy alone. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about things like Lonserve or Regorafenib, uh, which have, uh, you know, minimal effectiveness and some toxicity, especially with uh, Regorafenib. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, second line therapy, uh, the EPOC trial was recently published which showed that there was a two-month improvement in hepatic progression-free survival. Unfortunately, the overall survival was unchanged, but the response rate was increased by about 13%. So I, th I think there is uh, definitely a role in second-line treatment of uh, colorectal cancer patients as well, especially for those patients where, who you're, maybe you're trying to downstage uh, to resection. That improvement in response rate can be beneficial for sure. And then the first-line setting, um, you know, on the basis of the Surflox and Foxfire studies, uh, there's some data that patients uh, who had right-sided primaries had approximately five-month improvement in overall survival. And we'll consider that in our patient population, especially for younger patients or for those patients that maybe were trying to downstage for resection. And that leads me to a second question. How does the location of primary malignancy as well as tumor histopathology sometimes can affect the outcomes of radiumbolization? And what are some of the predictors or criteria that you use to select patients for radioembolization? Do you have different patient selection criteria based on each patient's primary tumor um, versus neuroendocrine versus breast? Yeah, so I mean, that, that's, that's a great question. So, you know, we, we mentioned a little bit about tumor location. So we consider that at least in the first line setting treatment of colorectal cancer, although we don't utilize it that often. 
But, you know, in terms of, you know, tumor histopathology, you know, like let's talk about, you know, neuroendocrine tumor, uh, for example. So these are patients that, you know, there's a lot of treatment options available. And now we have, you know, PRRT or lutetium, uh, mm -hmm. which is also utilized. So how do we look at, you know, tumor grades, for example? So what we, you know, the, the way that we've approached this in our own uh, institution, patients with low-grade tumor, if they have tumor, if they have liver-dominant metastatic disease from neuroendocrine tumor, we'll consider liver-directed therapy in those patients. And we tend to use more bland embolization for those patients as there is some concern for liver toxicity in the long term as these patients tend to live for a longer period of time. However, if they have, you know, multifocal uh, disease throughout the liver and it's not liver dominant, we tend to favor PRT or lutetium in that setting once they have progressed on sandostatin or lanreotide. On the other hand, if patients have, you know, intermediate or high grade neuroendocrine tumors, we tend to favor a liver directed therapy with Y90 in those patients when they have liver dominant disease. So that's you know, one example of how looking at the tumor grade, for example, mm -hmm. influences how we treat the patient and what treatment we offer the patient. Changing a little bit of uh, staying the Y90, but a little bit changing our indications here. In patients who undergo are undergoing partial hepatectomy, interventional radiologists are often asked to assist in preoperative hypertrophy induction. One of the most commonly used methods to induce hypertrophy of future liver remnants is portal vein embolization. However, recent studies have shown that radioembolization can also induce hypertrophy of contralateral lobe. In your practice, which method do you use and why? Well, you know, we use both. So, you know, I think there's pros and cons of, you know, both portal vein embolization and radioembolization. Let me talk to you about some of the advantages of Y90 over portal vein embolization. And then mm -hmm. I'll tell you, you know, how we, you know, when we use each. But Potential benefits of Y90 are number one, uh, you, you're actually controlling the tumor during that time for hepatic hypertrophy. And we commonly will utilize it when the tumor is actually abutting vessels or are very close to vessels because you could get tumor shift away from the vessels to allow for an R0 resection. And uh, sometimes you just cannot do that. So that can be extremely beneficial. The other beneficial thing of Y90 is allows for the biological kind of test of time approach because you know, the one downside of uh, utilizing Y90, at least in our experience, is it takes a little bit longer for hypertrophy compared to portal vein embolization. But uh, what's nice about that is that it does allow for the biological test of time. So if the patient does develop tumor progression during that time, the patient may not have benefited from a hepatectomy in the first place. And, uh, and then finally, it can be utilized in patients with portal vein uh, tumor thrombus as well. So, for you know, all those things are beneficial. On the other hand, for a patient that is purely resectable, uh, you know, at the time of, at the time of diagnosis, but just needs a little bit more hepatic, you know, a little bit more liver. In those cases, we tend to favor, typically for metastatic disease, we tend to favor a portal vein embolization as that hypertrophy is faster and the patient can have surgery faster. Um, but we tend to favor Y90, especially for these patients where we want the biological test of time. There's portal vein tumor thrombus, and especially if we were trying to cause a tumor shift away from the major blood vessels. Can you briefly describe your method for dosimetry? What are your target doses for radiation lobectomy versus segmentectomy, or if you combine the two sometimes in the same procedure? Sure, sure. So I think, you know, I have to uh, make a differentiation between glass and resin radiomicrosphere. So let's mm -hmm. start with glass. So for radiation segmentectomy, on the basis of the legacy trial, we tend to use uh, week one glass radio microspheres targeting at least 400 gray to the tumor. 
or radiation lobectomy, there's multiple ways of doing it with glass radiomicrosphere. So if you use single compartment dosimetry, we typically target about 150 gray to the absorbed uh, dose in the lobe, specifically typically for child QA patients. If we're using multi-compartmental dosimetry uh, on the basis of some data, especially from the dosisphere trial, you want to have a minimum absorbed dose of at least 205 gray, and you want to have the actual dose to the normal tissue to be greater than 88 gray mm-hmm. to allow for maximal hypertrophy. And then finally, I think you you know mentioned you know combining you know radiation segmentectomy or lobectomy. You know that can be done as well. You know, I think it's been termed you know boosted Y90. In that situation, we'll give a radiation segmentectomy dose to the tumor, giving at least 400 gray, and then we'll give a second administration to the actual lobe of 100 gray. And that's you know, again all that's for glass Y90. For resin Y90, when we're doing a radiation lobectomy, we're targeting at least 70 gray to the background liver and results in you know, a significantly higher dose to the actual tumor. We're doing radiation segmentectomy with the resin. There's less data, but we'll have more data with the you know, ongoing doorway trial. Mm-hmm. But again, we also target greater than, greater than 70 gray to the background liver, and we want to make sure that we get at least 150 gray to the tumor. The new four-day pre-calibration doses, which are now available, which have higher activity and fewer number of spheres can be extremely valuable for radiation segmentectomy if you are utilizing resin radiomicrospheres. That's great. Thank you so much for um, this detailed explanation answering this question, Gandhi. Um, now, what are your thoughts on the combination of atrium-90 radiomobilization and immune checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapy for the treatment of either primary or secondary patty malignancies? Well, I think there's a lot of promise. You know, I mean, recently there have been, you know, a couple of studies which have been done in the advanced stage HCC setting, specifically the IM Brave 150 and the Himalaya trials, which show the value of immune checkpoint inhibitors in patients with advanced HCC, although these studies were not done with local regional therapy. The launch trial was recently published, which specifically looked at the addition of case to lenvatinib in patients with advanced HCC. And there was an improvement in overall survival, as well as improved PFS and response rates. So while we don't yet have a trial which specifically looks at Y90 uh, plus systemic therapy with immune checkpoint inhibitors, I think that the launch trial and uh, the prior trials with immunotherapy and advanced Y90 really lends itself well for doing this trial. I think it's going to be uh, very beneficial, but we need the data to prove it. I was hoping that you will talk to us a little bit more about research trials you're currently involved in. I guess I'll focus for the purpose of this on the uh, oncologic uh, trials. Uh, we're involved in the doorway trial, which is a Y90 trial with resin radiomicrospheres, and we recently completed the resin registry for Y90. We are involved in uh, the Emerald 1 and the Emerald 2 trials. Emerald 1 looks at case in combination with dervolumab and bevacizumab in patients with hepatocellular carcinoma. Emerald 2 looks at the same agents as adjuvant therapy in patients with HCC at risk of recurrence following curative treatments such as ablation. We have a couple trials for pancreatic cancer. Uh, one is the Tiger Pack trial, which is a phase three randomized clinical trial, which compares uh, chemotherapy alone to intraarterial administration of chemotherapy. So that's a promising, and that's currently underway. And then we have uh, two trials for IRE, specifically looking at stage three of pancreatic cancer as well. Also looking into uh, utilizing vascular robotics, and I think that's going to be something that's going to be important in the future. 
Oh, this is very exciting. And I'm looking forward to follow up on this, uh, on the results of these trials. Through the years, Ripple, we've witnessed the evolution of radioembolization from a palliative treatment to a destination treatment or bridge to transplantation. What are your thoughts about the future of Y90? Well, I think the future is bright. You know, as you said, we have shown that there's better bridging the transplant than a taste, at least in uh, some studies. We can downstage the transplant. We can do radiation lobectomy, as we discussed, uh, which facilitates resection. We can do radiation segmentectomy, which if you look at the five-year survival, it's, you know, over 70%. So, you know, it could be potentially considered, you know, curative and alternative to ablation. There have been some, you know, recent studies, uh, you know, specifically the TRACE trial, uh, which was recently published in radiology, which was a phase two randomized clinical trial, which compared Y90 with depth taste, and actually showed that the this is the first study randomized trial that I'm aware of, which showed improvement overall survival. In fact, it was double, about 30 months versus 15 months with depth taste, mm-hmm. and there's improvement in uh, time to progression as well. So again, the giving us more data to utilize Y90. The importance of personalized dosimetry, I think, is very exciting. And mm-hmm. for example, the dosisphere trial was a, a phase two randomized clinical trial, which looked at, you know, not these small HCCs, but, you know, the really bad HCCs, greater than seven centimeters in size. I think, you know, nearly two thirds of the patients had portal vein tumor thrombus. And that showed when you utilize personalized dosimetry, you could improve the overall survival from seven months to, you know, over 26 months. So and finally, you know, as you mentioned before, as we discussed before, I think the future is going to be combination therapy. And I think, you know, specifically looking at studies at Y90 with Y90 in combination with immunotherapy is going to be very, very promising. And I look forward to seeing the results and participating in such trials. I agree with you, Ripal. The future is bright for interventional oncology. And this has been extremely helpful. I've learned a ton. And it has been a pleasure speaking with you as always. Uh, thank you so much for spending your Sunday afternoon with us and sharing your knowledge and expertise. Thank, thank you. you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. That wraps up another episode of IOL Radio. To listen to more conversations with specialists at the forefront of interventional oncology, please visit our podcast page at iolearning.com.